When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. just woke up from a nightmare and I find myself upset that I'll lose the fear that I was feeling because it was teaching me something if I don't focus on this feeling I will go back to bed wake up and then just live like a fucking robot never accessing this secret. When I look back, I see myself as another person. I have no allegiance to that thing. I see a little animal that didn't know why it was alive, kind of waddling through the world with just one person, their mother, to guide them and keep them safe. just an innocent state of mind where we all begin and then fast forward to this kind of cocky teenager that gobbles up 10 hits of acid and maybe finds himself on the other side of the world in India where in a panic struggling for some sort of somewhereness and having nothing to grab we come to this ground that is no ground where you really, really accept in an emergency sense, there is nothing helping me. I am nowhere. I'm barely a light hovering, and you are returning to true innocence, to a level that is terrifying. I am trapped. I am here. That's what Descartes said. I seem to exist. <laughs> now what? All I know is that I'm located somewhere. All I have is my own perception and I'm shackled to that. I can't escape myself and if I try, the ropes just tighten. This is what I call the four walls. season that I moved back down to my childhood town in North Carolina and 
just down the street from where I am currently is the first apartment we moved to when we got to North Carolina in 1982. Now I moved back to kind of rediscover something or just discover anything really. It felt like the right moment to come all the way home after 20 years or so of accomplishing the things that I had set out to do. And of all things, having that apartment just sitting there every day, if I get in the car or go skateboarding or walk, I'm going to pass that apartment on the way to anything every single day. So I had assumed for years that it would be just totally surreal to be back standing in front of that apartment where I conceptualized everything I did want to go do for all these years I've been away. So I think like everybody else does, I attributed a lot to that box that I grew up in and I thought that there was some special qualities to it and I wouldn't say I experienced a major disappointment in finding out that it just was literally four walls, but day by day the magic inevitably wore off and then all I was left with was literally looking at these four walls for the box that it is and I still can't grasp that that's the room that I lived in but more importantly where everything inside of my tiny little mind happened because when I review the surrounding elements I mean the population was maybe 10,000 people in this little town and I think about the kids that live nearby or the magazines I read it's like I'm trying to figure out well who put this thing inside me who who made me think that you ought to approach the world with some battle plan you came up with in your bedroom and that they would ever listen to you at all it's like I'm trying to find someone else who's responsible for what happened to my life there was just nothing in that room there was nothing going on it was essentially barren you know just four white walls there was nothing in there but my mind like i'm standing here again at the same spot and it almost seems like what happened in between was just a dream that I had or drew on the wall of that room. Because after all of the toiling and stress and supposed arrival points and accomplishments, I'm really just back here again in the same box that I started in without any particular awards or comforts surrounding me. I'm just on the same bed back to where I began alone. So you know how these things go. You go up into your mom's attic and you pull out your old stuff from your childhood and for years this stuff is drenched in a kind of magical dust and it can make you almost nauseous just peering at the actual physical forms of the things that you have mental images of but then year after year as you pull the teddy bears back out and the comic books and the pictures of yourself and the papers you wrote it tends to lose its power and eventually you're just kind of looking at stuff that someone else could have owned it's a kind of drab sadness it barely even has enough emotional charge to call it sadness so i'd been expecting some sort of inevitable impact upon my psyche as i drove up and saw that apartment from 1982 and it was strange but I couldn't really locate any evidence of me having been there. Like the bricks had never even aged. 
I couldn't tell if I felt robbed from a kind of emotional reaction, you know, like somebody died and you can't feel sad and you don't know why. But the absence of a reaction churned around inside of me and perplexed me because I wanted to get something out of this. I remember that room. It was a very small box with white walls, a tiny TV, and a bed. Probably some books and toys scattered around, but that's it. That is where my brain came into being, in that room. The fact that I just sat in this sterile atmosphere, this sterile box, there was kind of nothing in there. I mean, I can remember what was going on in town. I can remember basically what was going on in school. And it was just nothing, just generic horse shit. So whatever made me me that happened in that room, it's kind of a continual mystery. I didn't have brothers or sisters. My mom was an only child. My grandma was an only child. My grandma's mother died in her childbirth. And my mom and dad got divorced when I was only two. So we left Miami, Florida, and bam, the second I'm like six years old, I'm just waking up in this completely new state. I know nothing about where I'm going or where I've been. And then this happened. This thing that I am now is sitting here. And it's like I want to know who programmed it. I don't know if you feel that way. I don't know if you want to know where you came from. I don't think it's some lofty curiosity or something you need to do, but it is an obsession of mine to mull over these details, to rake over and sift out different information every time you kind of go slowly in a different direction. Everything I see in my life somehow reflects back Every time my friend's kid says something, I start thinking about what molded me. And obviously this podcast is some sort of journey into figuring this all out. Out where the bright lights are glowing You're drawn like a moth a flame You laugh while the wine's overflowing While I sit and whisper your name For walls to hear me As every day rolled on, 
I kept thinking about the little boy in that room and how he kind of had nothing to go on but just fantasy and the idea of being enclosed in four walls struck me as very familiar like a like a timeless situation that transcends cultures and the four walls themselves the idea of being in this box seems so familiar i realized i've seen it in different parts of modern culture starting around the age of like six or seven i saw this legendary twilight zone that i feel blew my mind completely and i wasn't sure why that's the thing is it just got stored away in the back of my head it was an episode called five characters in search of an exit clown hobo ballet dancer bagpiper and an army major a collection of question marks Five improbable entities stuck together into a pit of darkness. No logic, no reason, no explanation. Just a prolonged nightmare in which fear, loneliness, and the unexplainable walk hand in hand through the shadows. Now due to the genius of one man, Rod Serling, the world was broadcast an opening lesson in existentialism. So little kids and your redneck uncle alike we're kind of shattered by this episode. On the surface of things, this episode is just about a bunch of toys who have been thrown away and they then become conscious. Now naturally, they want to understand where they are and naturally they want to escape. What's going on here? Where are we? What are we? Who are we? None of us knows, Major. We don't know who we are. We don't know where we are. For our purposes, this is the universe, this little room. The ballerina is kind of acting as the resident acid witch, and the world's most well-spoken hobo is proclaiming probably what's closest to the answer that we have as human beings, that we just have to make the best of it with what we have. But really, who stays that calm? And don't we all relate to the army general who's flipping out because he's receiving death messages from the brain that say, if you don't get out of this black box, you're going to die. We, all of us, we are in hell. God help us. We are in hell. I feel like I can flip through being these different characters in various moments of just one day, like shifting wildly from the frustration of the army major over to the Zen interpretation of some sort of overly optimistic clown. He may have been very right. This may be hell. Clearly, Rod Serling was borrowing liberally from Sartre's No Exit. And there's something really beautiful about seeing something as a kid or reading something that seems completely academic and it gets absorbed in some layer of your brain where later a perfect example of something in your own life comes to the fore with the metaphor that you witnessed before and you realize why mythology exists you realize why these stories have been handed down and you unite with the millions of people that you've read about having existed in the past that you never seem related to suddenly you all have this common dilemma So I highly recommend going and watching this Twilight Zone episode, Five Characters in Search of an Exit. There's so many beautiful little lines and creative dynamics that if you shift the angle on how you think about the episode, there's always something new I feel like I'm getting from it. The older I get, the more I relate to their true panic. That is something that Heidegger and Kierkegaard, the gods of existentialism, really nail in their writing, is that 
part of the core of being alive is the nature of true panic. And a lot of our behavior and what drives it in life is just our attempt to subvert, repress, or just deal with the trauma of this essential core panic. That episode sat in the back of my mind for years as just a kind of model. It wasn't anything that made any great sense to me until I started using way too much LSD in my teenage years and I would get kind of surreal pictures of the universe as just, you know, a hovering box that I might be trapped in. As my own mental stability fell off in my teenage years, I was sort of rescued by this amazing luck that when I went off to college, I was given a guidance counselor who was a hardcore Taoist, and he introduced me to the Tao Te Ching. This became where I encountered the four walls concept for the second time, but in a much more positive, open-ended sense. Now the central Taoist text, the Tao Te Ching, says in chapter 47, Without going outside, you may know the whole world. Without looking through the window, you may see the ways of heaven. When I was younger, this passage both confused me and was probably my favorite section of the Tao Te Ching. It has the typical sound of a koan, or sort of a riddle that's annoying and teasing you, because you've probably come to the Tao Te Ching in an urgent seeking phase. And a lot of Buddhism or Taoism comes back at you with this kind of smirking reply that says it's your urgency that's actually holding you back. That if you just didn't try to put out the fire, there wouldn't be one. Which is obviously a terrible thing to hear if you feel like your flesh is burning. But I think what they're trying to drill into you is that there is no escape plan and it's time to consider this your home. There's this residual feeling that you came from somewhere better or you're supposed to go somewhere better. But it's time to face the facts. Hello wall. Hello. How'd things go? For you today Don't you miss her Since she up and walked away And I'll bet you dread to spend Another lonely night with me But lonely walls I'll keep you company Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's a surprisingly effortless union country music and Taoism. But maybe that's because they're both trying to tell you there's no way out. And from a more optimistic standpoint, the Tao Te Ching might say that there's this infinite amount of universes inside of you. So it's not a focus on the limits of the walls. It's just saying that you exist somewhere. 
both country music and Taoism are both very egalitarian, inviting, inclusive things because everybody knows what it feels like to be alone. To be alive, to write a song, to speak or participate in realization in the oldest sense is to say, why have you forsaken me? To come to inside of the four walls, to become conscious, is to say, here I am, I exist. Maybe why have thou forsaken me shouldn't have had a negative connotation, when Christ is really just saying, how did I get separated from you? What is this to feel alone? And then from this separateness, we get the concept of heaven. The destructive, terrible concept that somewhere up where our original home was, the perfect place that we need to get back to, this constant temptation, destroys every moment that we could be appreciating this world. So the third place that I started to see the Four Walls mythology was oddly in American country music where being alone is a central theme to the point where we encounter this sort of perennial figure, the perennial cowboy at the end of the bar on the stool with the hat just drinking into infinity. It's this generic endless concept that we revisit. Nelson started his career he's got that kind of tubby depression in all of his photos he doesn't seem to like where he is or who he is and then by the time the outlaw movement comes along he's definitely been smoking all sorts of shit his eyes have this glassy celestial independence so just for the sake of argument let's look at Hello Walls as a metaphor on several different levels. The song begins with Willie essentially apologizing to the walls of his home because his lady is gone and there won't be any more joy or entertainment to while away the hours. And I'll bet you dread to spend another lonely night with me. But lonely walls, I'll keep you company. So as Willie commiserates with the window pane and the walls about how it must be lonely just to have to exist now without distraction, he offers some metaphor that the woman that brought love into his life is the thing that makes the walls and the windows forget about themselves. So certainly there's this overbearing trope or cliche of country music that being alone is bad and focusing on yourself has some sort of unredeeming, painful result. But if read another way, Willie is saying that life is spent generally chasing the things that make you forget yourself. And like Br'er Rabbit in the Briar Patch, Willie is actually in his element. Maybe he's actually not trying to escape it. Maybe he acknowledges his limitations. He almost sings with a kind of smirk like he gets the joke on several different levels that he's preparing to live alone as if he really has any choice because this is where we come from, where we return to, and where we exist. We exist in these four walls. She went away and left us all alone the way she planned. Guess we'll have to learn to get along without her. 
if we can. Hello, ceiling. Hello. Hello. I'm gonna stare at you a while. You know I can't sleep. So won't you bear with me a while? We gotta all stick together. Or else I'll lose my mind I got a feeling she'll be gone A long, long time Willie wrapped up the song so logically clean that he leaves the listener with a simple pop song and they can go on with their lives. And he gets out of there and he gets paid and he goes on to live his life with a little bit of a wink, turning back to say, yeah, I know what I'm doing. I'm not stuck inside these songs. I'm living above them. You can read the song literally because it's done so well, or you can point to the things that are transcendent above it and repurpose the lyrics for whatever Zen Buddhist phase you're in. Some velvet morning when I'm straight I'm gonna open up your gate And maybe tell you about Phaedra And how she gave me life how she made it in Some velvet morning when I'm straight Shifting sideways to a more overtly perverse lyricist, Lee Hazelwood maybe intrinsically being more of an unhappy person uses phrases like some velvet morning to mock the possibility of ever reaching an arrival point or just the idea of feeling good at all as the idea of velvet touching his skin is somehow more anticipatorily powerful than velvet actually touching it it's some velvet morning it's always coming it's always hovering in the future Bring me water short and scotch tall A big long black cigar, that ain't all Hang me a hammock between two big trees Leave me alone, damn it, let me do as I please Cause my autumn's done come My autumn's done come Yeah, done come Autumn's Done Come, Lee Hazelwood talks about the same phase Willie gets to when he lands in his own bedroom with no distractions, no, no allure of joy. Lee Hazelwood talks about a place that you get to in life where all chores and menial temporal things are finished and done. Now in one sense, this is just waking life, a place where we're all supposed to be located, but aren't really there. We're never really totally present, and he's dreaming of being present. And in another sense, he's sketching out heaven. The idea of heaven itself is something I've always assumed must have been there in the human mind since the beginning of consciousness. It's something that tempts us forward, but also is just the sense of perfectness that eludes us all the time. It's a thinking error, an imaginary place that ruins our life constantly. It's a dangerous distraction 
something that needs to be deconstructed throughout life in order to be present. The word itself symbolizes the hovering trophy of escapism, the the dangerous idea that life is too painful to face head-on, that through distraction and through looking towards another place, we can remove ourselves from the four walls. But maybe that's why Willie's smirking, because he knows that can't be done, and he knows that other people will constantly run away from this home and try to chase entertainment to Valhalla, a place that he knows doesn't exist. If there was ever a moment where someone hit the bullseye and addressed this notion, it's pretty clearly heaven by the talking heads when David Byrne is saying that in heaven, a kiss must never end. Something that even a child can discern. There's something wrong with this initial concept of heaven. There's something wrong with the idea that you could bite into a peach forever. There is a party. By mocking heaven and saying that it's hard to imagine that nothing at all could be that much fun, it points back to the fact that every misery you experience and every kind of problematic frontier you're wrestling with in your life must be the only arena for you to find peace in, that the four walls that Willie is sitting inside of must be Valhalla. We speculate on these other places, but really there's only one place, and it's the place that we exist. My personal introduction to the Four Walls concept was, bizarrely, this James Taylor song that he had written for George Jones called Bartender's Blues. I think it's written for George because anyone who's studied his life knows that he was sort of too free. He couldn't seem to chain himself down to any kind of consistency or discipline or just basic safety. George Jones himself was an unsafe entity. I think there's stories of him having to be chained down and restrained, probably several. But in the case of Bartender's Blues, he actually craves the four walls. He doesn't even understand his own limitations. He can't see them. He is just energy blasting through space hurling itself into imminent danger. But I need four walls around me to hold my life to keep me from going astray and a honky-tonk angel to hold me tight Slipping away I can light up your smokes I can laugh at your jokes I can watch you fall down on your knees I can close down this bar I can gas up my car I can pack up and mail in 
So all these lyrics aren't just poetry. In the Twilight Zone, the characters are obsessed with getting the fuck out. It's a natural inclination. And the army general is quite right in wanting to understand and wanting to try to figure out his situation. But the twist, if there is nowhere to go, if you accept that you can't leave it, then what do you do? Well, a long, long time ago, in the East, they developed Buddhism. (laughs) But the idea that you would have to live with the pain and live with the confusion of not being able to solve this riddle is so disappointing to the Western consumer mind that they're just willing to invent whatever kind of religious product that will suggest that there is a cure. It could be a medication. It could be a very long, complicated story that you tell someone to fucking memorize and includes heaven. Just do the right thing, which also sits in line with every fucking thing I want you to do. What a cruel, cruel thing to do to a child to tell them that there is a secret way to alleviate pain and suffering instead of just telling them the truth. When I met Duncan, he showed me Be Here Now, which was a book that was always sitting on my mom's shelf or people of my mom's age and the hippie community. And it was just something I had sort of walked past my whole life. And, you know, I opened it up and I saw a bunch of LSD-inspired drawings and silly kind of hippie phrases and eventually turned back to the introduction, which at that time, ended up being the most important thing I had read in that particular phase because it confirmed so much about the turning point of seeing yourself enclosed, the paradoxical prison of being alive, which is being one thing, but being all things, but being nothing. And it takes that turning point, that horrific moment, and it spins it around the corner. The way Ram Dass explains his own horrific realization as it turns positive, it's like a great calm comes over you. Basically, Ram Dass has been depressed for months and months and months, and it's just not stopping. He has ceased to find joy in the smallest things. When he first finds acid, it provides him with some temporary relief, and he blankets the windows and just takes it for days and days on end, just trying to stay there in this place where the four walls dissolve. He can see clearly beyond them that the universe is his home. It welcomes him. It is the womb. But when he comes off of the acid, 
it all constricts around him again. He's totally blind. He's totally confused. The only types of relief he can find are totally temporary. When things get to their absolute worst fever pitch, the place where the bile is just spilling up out of his esophagus into his fucking brain, and he just wants to die. It's a place you could call the end of the road, where the car is just headed toward the brick wall at 300 miles per hour, and your face is just coming right up to it, and it's time to die. In this moment, he's sitting on the couch, and he starts to hallucinate. He's been a wealthy psychologist. He has everything going for him. It's his job to tell other people how to be happy. He's been living an acute, fucked lie. And in his fever dream, he sees his yacht materialize in front of him. And he sees it start to sink. His life is ending. It's time to say goodbye. The boat sinks. His plane materializes in front of him. His plane bursts into flames. His career materializes in front of him. It starts to disintegrate. He's crying. It's time to die. He's thinking about himself as a child. He's thinking about his mom. He's thinking about everything he was supposed to be. That story is over now. His own body materializes in front of him. He sees as it starts to die. Everything he's ever loved is gone. What happens when everything is gone? What well, it turns out, nothing. He checks himself. He realizes something still exists. And slowly realizes that the one thing that he already trusts lives on forever and he's enjoying it right now he had lost the ability to even see straight everything was misery but in seeing everything burn that he thought was him whatever was left the pure remains was the source of everything. The mouth of the fucking whole river. Everything else was made from it. Everything else was a subcategory. Why did he need all these other things? Was this not a miracle? This is the best thing that ever happened to him. It wouldn't have happened if he hadn't have hit that fever pitch of misery. And that wouldn't have happened if he hadn't been born into these four walls. Which is now what he realizes is all he has and all that will ever be. How lucky to find that kind of affirmation. Till the day he fucking died, the guy had a fucking smile on his face. throughout life. I mean, people told me, you think too much. You're making this more complicated than it is. That's all I ever heard. Lower your standards. You know, I don't think that attitude ever solved a fucking thing. As brutal as the fever pitch and that sickness that Ramdas was feeling is, you have to be grateful for it because it forces you all the way up against the wall to discover the most simple, pure knowledge that saves you in the end.
after some sort of acid trip, we've gone through so many dimensions and layers of brain chemistry and realization and unrealization and confusion and then total clarity and the sun's coming up and you're walking home and you come into your room and you see your things and your bed and the cup you drank tea out of at noon and your coat on the wall and you realize you can go anywhere but the universe will just catch you and put you right back where you came from and it's a good place You just have to let yourself cycle back through to realize that. It's always just a passing corridor you're in. All of the things you saw, were they real? Or were you just sitting there inside the four walls, dreaming the entire time. You can try to escape. Go ahead.